0: Hello, and how's it going? Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I get to bring you every week these stories of the people, companies and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. We get to talk to the founders, the farmers, the innovators and the investors all impacting the future of this great industry. Well, I believe that ruminant agriculture doesn't get enough of the credit it deserves. As we talk about alternatives, uh, such as plant-based, cell-based, lab-grown, et cetera, often the conversation gets reduced down to inputs and outputs, meaning, uh, hey, these are just some creatures we have for our own meat, our own milk, our own eggs, et cetera, and we could just Throw in an alternative. And I think there's a lot more to the story than that. These are dynamic systems that actually bring a lot more value than just that output that's immediately obvious. And so uh, as we have this conversation, I think it's important for us to look at the entire system. And I have someone on the show today that does as good of a job as anyone I have seen on that topic. We have on the show Dr. Sarah Place, Uh, and I have wanted to bring Dr. Place onto the show ever since I started following her on Twitter about a year ago because of the information that she provides regularly Uh, dr place is the senior director of sustainable beef production research at the national cattlemen's beef association she's got a phd from my alma mater uc davis in animal biology and a bachelor's from cornell in animal science she has some fantastic information uh, related to everything from how ruminants upcycle other products uh, take something of lower value and make it higher value Uh, everything from that to to the truth behind cow farts which has been a hot topic in the news as of lately anyway enjoy this interview with dr sarah place very excited to have on the show dr sarah place who is the senior director of sustainable beef production research at ncba dr place thanks so much for being on the show
1: you bet. Thanks for having me.
0: And I know you told me to call you Sarah, and I already messed that up. But anyway, I'll probably alternate back and forth. Oh, today. that's okay.
1: That's okay. <laughs> you might
0: win the award for the longest title that's been on the show.
1: It, it is a very long one. You know, it, it's uh, I'm looking at my business cards right now. It's broken up onto three lines. So, you know, we're uh, really shoving a lot of words on there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I even abbreviated the acronym NCBA, but it's National Cattlemen's Beef Association. For those of you listening who who may not be familiar, I, I think some people, especially on um, sort of the, the the fringes, might hear "sustainable" and "beef" and think that those two words don't go together. You know, there are those that believe that we grow all these resources, you know, we grow all these crops and they're used just to make beef. And if they were just used for human food, we'd all be better off and we wouldn't have to, you know, double up on all those resources. So how do you answer that sort of claim that uh, beef and sustainable don't belong together?
1: Yeah, I think you bring up a good um, or highlight a good that's out there is the idea that cattle are somehow really inefficient and essentially like they're stealing food from the mouths of babes right that we're feeding a lot of um, plants to animals that we could be just eating directly and specific to cattle Um, but really what we what we do at NCBA is look at the science for this and actually try to understand what's going on out in the landscape what are people actually feeding their cattle so we've done extensive surveys from producers all across the United States and that gives us a much better idea of actually what our cattle eating in the US. Um, So we we know from a standpoint of what it takes to feed grain finished cattle in the United States and that's 82% of what they eat in their life is actually grass and other forages. About 7% are all the byproduct feeds that we use so essentially plant leftovers from food, fiber, biofuels production. And then only about 11% of what cattle eat is actually grain, which is always surprising to people because I think we all have that idea. And when we talk about beef in the U.S., we talk about corn-fed beef, but it's really not a lot of corn that gets fed to cattle in the grand scheme of things. It's about 2.6 pounds per pound of beef, uh, carcass weight or hanging weight.
0: And and why is that significant to say that 82% of what a grain-fed uh, head of cattle would eat our forages.
1: Yeah, so it's it comes down to the you know realization that regardless of how cattle are finished, whether they're grass finished or grain finished, um, beef cattle production in the United States and really all across the world is a forage based industry. Um, so coming back to this idea of resource competition with other foods that that people eat directly or plant-based foods that we would eat directly, right? Most of the grazing lands in the United States are such that you can't cultivate them, right? Um, as I sit here in, in Denver, Colorado area, you know, a lot of this entire state um, just really can't grow crops, especially without irrigation, right? So we have a lot of land resources throughout the United States, hundreds of millions of acres that support grazing livestock and primarily beef cattle in the United States. Um, but that's really where that 82% comes into play, right? It's cattle are taking something that's of little or no value to humans directly in terms of if are going to consume it, and they make a higher value product. And really, that's what we call upcycling, um, or that is the definition of upcycling, and that's what cattle do every single day.
0: Yeah, and I, I want to get into more upcycling, but before I, before I uh, leave this issue, I, I have seen, you'll see like an infographic on social media that basically represents, uh, cattle as being the most inefficient. Like it takes the most amount of resources to produce, um, that pound of of meat or or whatever the case may be. But that seems in the context of what you just said about how most of what they're eating is actually, uh, forages that's taken from maybe rangelands or, or, or ground that can't be used to produce food. That seems maybe a little bit misleading.
1: Yeah. And, and that comes back to, Really, most of those things you'll see is about feed conversion efficiency, right? So, how much feed does it take to make a given amount of product, whether it's beef or pork or chicken? Um, and usually, people express that, you know, kind of what you're referring to if you see memes on the internet, it's essentially dry matter pounds of feed it takes to make a pound uh, of beef. And that's one way of looking at it, but again, most of that dry matter, most of that feed that is actually going towards cattle is human inedible stuff. So We've also looked at that as expressing feed conversion efficiency from a human edible standpoint. So meaning, what are the feed resources that livestock are actually eating that could be eaten by people if we had to? Not that most people would wanna eat corn and soy directly, but if we had to, we could. Um, And what's interesting is when you express it that way, a lot of those differences across cattle and uh, pigs and chickens actually go away. So that 2.6 pounds number I gave you per pound of carcass weight uh, is quite similar to what it would be if you express feed conversion efficiency for chickens and for pigs on a carcass weight basis. Really the difference for cattle is that the human edible feed that they are eating, when we think about corn grain, um, is a pretty poor protein value that for, for people, if we eat it directly, right? If we eat corn grain, we're going to have to eat a heck of a lot of corn grain to meet our lysine requirement, one of the essential amino acids. Um, and that's really where cattle kind of have an advantage actually from a feed conversion standpoint is that they're able to use poor quality um, human edible feeds like corn or other grains are protein deficient as compared to pigs and chickens that are gonna have to eat higher quality protein sources like soybean meal. Um, that's just driven by the biology of those different animals. They're monogastrics, they're simple stomachs, omnivores, right? just like you or I, uh, pigs and chickens are. So they have to eat their essential amino acids to, to meet their requirements. As compared to cattle that have that symbiotic relationship with all the microbes that live in their rumen. Uh, and of course, ruminants, they actually they actually eat those microbes, if you will, they digest them, and that's where they get a lot of their uh, protein requirements met. So kind of went into the weeds and the biochemistry of it or the nutrition of it, but um, what it comes down to the takeaway is that a lot of these metrics for sustainability really just depends on how you measure them, right? If you're going to talk about fee conversion efficiency, you can express it multiple ways and essentially change the ranking of what production system is so-called best or worst.
0: Yeah. And, and don't worry, you didn't go far enough in the weeds to lose me. And I'm the most simple minded person that listens to this show. So we're, we're safe there so far. But yeah, I think it's a really important point. And I, I think of it, too, as you know, if you're going to decide to live off the land and you go buy a 50 acre parcel that, you know, some of it's hilly and some of it's flat and the flat stuff you could use to grow food on, you know, if you're going to stand on principle and say, I'm not going to eat any animal agriculture, all of that hilly stuff that you can't grow crops on is just going to go unused completely, you know, as opposed to if you would, you know, uh, if you would say, well, I don't want to use a beef, uh, any beef on my property because they're not efficient. uh, Well, it's even less efficient to just not use all of that, you know, piece of property that that's at your disposal. And I think that's what we do a lot of times where we just say, you know, we look at just feed conversion and we rule out ruminants.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think things are always very complicated, and there's a great parallel there. Of, of course, most people are omnivores, right? We yeah. plant plant foods and animal source foods, and um, just like there's that complexity and uh, you know complementary way that foods fit together, it's the same thing in agricultural production, right? Yeah. Uh, it is unfortunate sometimes it gets cast as either or, but really it's about how the, all these things fit together and how. Um, how there's synergies
0: between them. Yeah. You just described the the thesis of this show that there is no, there is no one defined answer to the future of agriculture. That's going to be all the pieces fitting, fitting together. So absolutely. You mentioned upcycling earlier and you have put out some great stuff on Twitter. If you're not following her on Twitter, you need to be uh, at uh, Dr. S place on Twitter and we'll put that in the show notes, but uh, you put out some great stuff on upcycling before we get into the, uh, to how it relates to beef. Can you just uh, set the stage here about how have people normally thought of upcycling? What are some outside-of-beef examples of upcycling?
1: Yeah, I think some of your listeners will, will, if they've heard that word, right, they think about it in the context of, you know, recycling old furniture or upcycling old. Um, you know, one of the classic examples is like taking pallets and turning it into you know, actual furniture that you would use in your house. Essentially, that's what upcycling is, right? It's like taking things that could be viewed almost as trash and making something that's a higher value product out of it. And I think, kind of in this DIY you know era, there's a lot of interest in doing that in things outside of food and agriculture. Um, but when it comes to agriculture you know, obviously I'm interested in beef and that's a lot of what we talk about, but really that's what agriculture is all about is, is value adding um, all these different products, especially animal agriculture. Um, you know, that's, what we, that's why we have domesticated livestock as a way for us to value add plants, right? Uh, the most simple way of looking at it. Um, and cattle and other ruminant animals are just really good at doing that whole value, value adding process and upgrading process.
0: Yeah, break that down for us. Is I know you mentioned earlier, corn is actually a poor protein source. So when we can turn corn into meat, which is a great protein source, that's one. Uh, that's one version of upcycling. What What else do 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 beef cattle help us upcycle?
1: Yeah, so I mentioned earlier those byproducts, right? That come from human food production, um, fiber production. So things like cottonseed, cottonseed meal. Um, and biofuels when we think about things like dried distillers grains that come from corn ethanol production. Um, So there's so many examples, and a lot of these are actually very local. Um, You know, just yesterday I was in Kentucky, and of course it's a big uh, bourbon state, and a lot of distillers grains are getting produced from distilleries. And those distillers grains are a big source of feed for cattle around there. Um, And of course that's not something that we're gonna be able to eat, It's something that would kind of be bound for a landfill or some other use uh, that wouldn't be a higher value use if we didn't have livestock to actually feed it to and again create a higher value product. So that's really what, what upcycling is about. There's all these examples. There's of course examples that cut uh, different ways, right? Of course, we can even think about using livestock manure as a fertilizer source in plant agriculture as a way to off-cycle, right? Something that could be considered waste if we're not handling it properly in terms of manure um, and using it properly um, and at an agronomic rates to actually generate, again, more food or more crops that could be fed back to, to livestock, right? So there's so many different examples um, in agriculture, and I think for a lot of us that are you know, involved in production agriculture, involved in the industry in some way, it's just thinking about what you do and explaining it a little bit differently to those that are outside of the day-to-day grind of production agriculture.
0: Right. I, I think a lot of people want to look at it one dimensionally, just like, hey, we either put resources into growing kale and lettuce or we put resources into growing beef. Uh, and it's it's really not quite that simple. And, and they think, OK, if we just rid the world of beef, we'll have uh, we'll just make up for it in, in these other other crops. And they ignore this whole aspect of the value add, especially of, of ruminants. And I don't know, I know you're you're a beef person, but is the same true for monogastrics or is that pretty unique to just ruminants?
1: Yeah, I think we, we can think about monogastric animals are, are doing that as well, right? Even when they're eating um, some of these feeds that are maybe potentially a little bit more in competition with human food, they're also upgrading it, right? I mean, even just from an eating experience, I think probably most listeners would agree that they would rather eat Bacon than corn, right? <laughs> that's a uh, that's a clear upgrade from a standpoint of quality uh, and the value that it brings. But those examples of some of the byproducts that get fed to to livestock, of course, we feed byproducts also to our monogastric species, hmm. um, and that historically, of course, pigs have always pigs and chickens have both always been a great way to get rid of. Uh, or upgrade food waste, you know, things that we have left over that we don't want to consume. Um, and of course, both those species also, um, their manure is a great source for growing um, vegetable crops or whatever else it may be, right? So that's always what's key. It's like, if you're somebody that's eating a vegetarian uh, organic diet, I mean, if you're eating an organic diet, you're gonna be relying on organic sources of fertilizer for your, your plants that you're eating, and of course, a big source of fertilizer is animal manure, right? So there's just really no way to get around that um, in terms of that integration process. So essentially, you know, it's like plants and animals, they depend upon one another, uh, and they both depend upon healthy soil and a healthy environment. So um, again, there's just no absolutes when it comes to this stuff.
0: Yeah. And I, th- I think maybe, you know, there there's starting to be an interest in, in regenerative agriculture. And, and I know that term is sort of just as ill-defined as sustainability in some instances. But um, trying, you know, part of a, a regenerative agriculture system, as I understand it, is returning uh, ruminants to, to the land as part of a rotation um, for benefits to the soil itself. Um, is, is that, you know... Are you seeing that from a beef standpoint, and, and uh, are you doing any work in in regenerative agriculture specifically?
1: Yeah, I think we have a lot of um, we have a lot of producers that are very interested in those concepts, or interested in more holistic management. Um, and really, you know, it kind of comes back to some of your earlier questions about you know financial situation of our farmers and ranchers. I think a lot of them are understanding and thinking about um, you know how can I how can I reduce the amount of you know, inputs that cost me a lot of money to, to generate my income, right? And thinking more about um, net income per acre rather than just simply maximizing output. Um, and I think that, that kind of mindset has, has driven a lot of adoption of some of these proce- or processes or practices um, that would be quantified in that, in that kind of way, whether it's like holistic management or regenerative um, practices. Um, and I think that, too, is just kind of thinking about this whole idea of integration of crops and animals and just trying to get it better linked up either on an individual farm or in, in the local environment, right? That crop livestock integration doesn't necessarily mean that one farm has to have all those different species, but maybe it's having relationships or partnerships with others that do um, have the livestock or whatever it may be to, to enhance their own. Their own operations.
0: Sarah I know you've done uh, a lot of research in the past with greenhouse gas emissions so maybe you could set the record straight for us. Uh, what's what's the science say? Are, are, are cow farts causing global warming?
1: Yeah so I think the first thing is that uh, cow farts themselves are kind of fake news right. It's mostly comes out the front end of cattle and other ruminants so that's always one of the things we want to convey to people and I probably feel more passionately about that just because I actually have measured a lot of my past research has been measuring methane gas from cattle, so perhaps it gives a better impression of the work that I did, right, if people realize it came out the front end, not the back end of the animal. Um, So cattle, other ruminant animals, they do naturally produce methane, that's 100% true. And if listeners aren't familiar, methane is a greenhouse gas. It is more potent at trapping heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide, which is why it gets a fair amount of attention. So in terms of the emissions that actually come from cattle, if we look at it from a U.S. specific um, lens, the methane emissions and any of the emissions that come from the animals manure, both methane um, and then another potent greenhouse gas called nitrous oxide, it's about 2% of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. So again, 2% of direct emissions coming from beef cattle production. Um, And that's a number that comes from the U.S. EPA inventory that gets put out every April. So it's not nothing, um, but it's also something that we have a lot of scientists working on in terms of trying to reduce those emissions wherever possible, um, but also put it in context. And I could go kind of a little bit more into that, but methane is a little complex in terms of how it fits within the carbon cycle. And there are some differences there between Methane that's coming from ruminant animals from a, from a constant herd size like we have in the United States are even slightly declining as compared to you know all the carbon dioxide that comes from fossil fuel burning when we're driving our cars or using electricity in the United States.
0: And, and I think maybe there's a and this probably gets fairly complicated, but there's also a question there about. Um, I would think, kind of net effect. And what I mean by net effect is y- you're mentioning all these byproducts and that we wouldn't really have a place to go with if, if cattle or other animal agriculture wasn't eating them, but also the symbiotic relationship between Uh, cattle and microbes in the soil that fix carbon as well does does that take into account that where you know it's 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 uh, almost part of a cycle that yes methane does get released it is a greenhouse gas but we're also uh fixing carbon in the soil through some of these animal agriculture practices or or am i looking at am i missing a piece there
1: no that is important so it is kind of all about the flows of carbon through through the system so you know, when we think about methane, methane itself is a molecule, is a carbon and four hydrogens. And essentially, you know, where that's coming from when cattle are belching out methane is from the carbohydrates in the plants that they're eating, right? Or all the other carbon containing compounds in the plants. And that carbon in the plants is coming from photosynthesis, which we know is carbon dioxide being pulled out of the atmosphere. So what's unique about methane is when cattle emit methane, or any methane is emitted into the atmosphere, after about 10 or 12 years, the methane itself gets broken down into carbon dioxide. So essentially, it's a cycle where the carbon is just going from one form to another. Um, and as I mentioned, when it is methane, it does have a higher potential to trap heat. But the question is, you know, do cattle drive up the concentration of methane in the atmosphere? Um, and we have research that has come out recently from Oxford University and other locations kind of looks at this from a standpoint of if you have, as I kind of referenced earlier, what we have in the United States is a cattle herd that's actually gone down over the last 40 years. It's really hard to link our emissions from cattle here in the United States to increasing concentrations of methane in the atmosphere and therefore increasing temperatures that are due to methane. So that's a little complicated, but it is important to understand that context because I think what happens, kind of what you referred to is people will compare carbon footprints of say different products, right? And a carbon footprint is where you add up all the greenhouse gas emissions from the production system and you divide it by the amount of production and you say, okay, this is how much carbon emissions get produced you know, per pound of beef or per pound of broccoli or whatever it may be. Um, and usually people just look at comparing those two numbers and come to a conclusion that oh if we just swap one from another, you know, the difference between those two numbers is our benefit that we're gonna get. Uh, but as you referred to, right, all these things are integrated and it's it's complicated. And so we know that if you do make a major shift in agricultural production, there's gonna be unintended consequences and ripple effects that happen that may mean this whole idea that you know one number is greater than another. Isn't actually going to translate into the world, right? Um, so that that's that is a complex, you know, a complex whole topic. And I think the main thing I would just say is uh, for listeners to kind of think about that. You know, is this an analysis that you're reading about in the paper or, or you're listening about that is actually looking at consequences, or is it again kind of one of these simplified, you know, comparing X and Y and taking the difference and saying that's you know that's our benefit, if you will, quote unquote benefit.
0: Sure. Yeah. What I found is when issues get complicated, they get a, a lot easier to spin to whatever narrative you want to put out into the world. Is that what you found?
1: Yes. Yeah. I think we, yeah, we're, we're definitely in a situation with sustainability that you can, and, and agriculture and food that you can find a study, a peer reviewed study that supports any previously held beliefs that you have. Right. right? And then makes it super hard to try to have these conversations that are, it should be all about the shades of gray and the nuance and admitting you know, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Um, and I think that's important, too. It's exciting from a science perspective is thinking about what, what could we do, what is possible in the future. Um, but it's when we have discussions that are kind of getting into the policy arena and people wanting to change things, it can be hard to have that conversation about, well, there's just a lot we don't know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How about how about for you personally? When did you kind of first become interested and or passionate about, about these topics?
1: Yeah, so I'm from uh, upstate New York originally. I grew up on a dairy farm and uh, I think that kind of shaped a lot of my perceptions in terms of I've always been interested in uh, the intersection between agriculture and the environment and was lucky to grow up in a beautiful place and spend a lot of time walking around in the woods and just being around nature, and so that gave me a real appreciation of it. Um, But really uh, where my interest got sparked was when I went to college and I did some, you know, I did an internship with uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension and looking at nutrient management issues and then ended up going to grad school at UC Davis, uh, working with Dr. Frank Loner on greenhouse gas emissions, other emissions from cattle. Um, And to me, it's just a fascinating combination of you know, two things that I'm, again, passionate about is environmental issues and thinking about how we use resources, you know, what's the future going to be, and also nourishing everybody and, and, uh, and of course, the animal piece, too. I think it's, it's hard to find somebody in animal science that you're not an animal lover, right? So that's always another thing that drives my interest in it.
0: Sure, and I, I don't know if you have an opinion about this, so share or, or not. Either either way, but uh, there are those who are looking at the sustainability issue as it relates to animal agriculture and taking the approach of of trying to grow meat in a lab. And I know, you know, there really isn't any commercially viable um, lab grown meat on on the market right now. But but uh, is that something that's of concern to uh, to beef producers that maybe? Uh, that will be a realistic competitor to, to the beef from a sustainability uh, standpoint?
1: Yeah, I think uh, some of our producers have definitely been um, very interested in this whole process. And as you mentioned, right, it isn't a large-scale commercial process yet. There is no product available. Um, and so there's lots of issues that are kind of wrapped up in that in terms of nomenclature and um, just the regulatory environment. That's kind of outside my purview from a sustainability perspective, I think there's a lot of claims that have been made by, you know, sometimes the companies, but sometimes people that are just interested in, in pushing forward this technology um, that kind of come back to some of these like fundamental misunderstandings of what ruminants actually do and this, this underlying idea that they're inherently inefficient that I think is actually completely 180 right and wrong that they're not inefficient, they're very efficient at what they do. So it's just kind of a misunderstanding of, again, this really awesome symbiotic relationship they have with the microbes um, in their room. And so from that standpoint, uh, my personal view on it is always, I'm not really that worried about <laughs> lab meat kind of taking over. I think there's always going to be kind of an ick, ick factor for consumers. Um, and just from a standpoint of resource competition, if you think about like the process of how that lab-grown meat is going to have to be made. I mean, it's still a cell culture. It's still mammalian cells. And so um, they're going to have to be fed all the nutrients, all the essential amino acids like any other mammalian cell. And so that doesn't just spring out of nowhere, right? You're going to have to have growth media and you're going to have to, um, in some cases, probably use a synthetic bioreactor to actually make the essential amino acids. So have, you know, a vat full of, um microbes making the amino acids and that's kind of how commercial amino acid synthesis works um so i think that's that's an important consideration is that all that kind of infrastructure will take a lot of fossil fuel inputs um and there has been an interesting study that recently came out that kind of looked at that from a standpoint of greenhouse gas emissions and realizing that you know we don't know there's a lot of unknowns because you're comparing uh, a process that hasn't been commercialized yet but just based on those realities that probably how it's going to work at least now or in the near future is going to require a lot of fossil inputs there's really no clear benefit to some sort of synthetically grown um, muscle tissue over the real thing from a standpoint of greenhouse gas emissions or a lot of our other sustainability metrics.
0: Right and it also kind of just uh distills all animal agriculture down to just the major output, you know, just meat or, or maybe in another example, just, just milk or just eggs. But as, as I've seen you point out uh, in, in some of the content you've shared, there's a lot of other products uh, coming out of the animal agriculture system that maybe people don't think about. Could, could you share a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So I think oftentimes we hear kind of the rhetoric of you know, the synthetic products potentially will be better because we don't have to waste all the energy growing the, the hide and the bones and everything else. But of course, that's not a waste, right? We use all those products that come from cattle, that come from all of our livestock species. Um, so really everything but the moo gets used when it comes to beef cattle, you know, actually harvesting, slaughtering the animals and using everything. Um, there's a lot of those, of course, what we call variety meats, things like beef tongue or organ meats like liver that definitely get eaten by people, they just might not get eaten by Americans. And so that's a big part of our export market when it comes to uh, beef products. But there's so many things that come from um, you know bone and some of the um, glands in the animal terms of pharmaceuticals or even you know gelatin that people use in baking or you know people don't think of jello as a cow product but it kind of is right in terms of uh, what's actually the ingredients to that product so there's so many things that we use in our everyday life um, that depend upon livestock and usually again when we talk about some of these analyses and all the ripple effects that would happen with a major shift you know away from livestock production the cost of replacing all those things in our daily life the environmental cost um, is
0: typically ignored. Even some people who uh, who who are are comfortable with, with animal agriculture and eating meat uh, don't love the idea of of a feedlot. And I and I realize a feedlot is not a picturesque uh, type of place for most people. Uh, what what would you tell a consumer about why that part of beef production is still important?
1: Yeah, I'd say first first and foremost, if you want to know what, what life is like on a feedlot, um, definitely check out beefitswhatsfordinner.com because we have a whole section with videos and actually virtual reality videos where you can take a tour of a 50,000 head feedlot. Um, and I think that's the, the main thing is that people often see images that are um, kind of misrepresenting what daily life is actually like on a feedlot. And so by that, I mean, you know, of course, cattle are super social creatures and oftentimes you'll see a picture at a feedlot where all the animals will be at the feed bunk eating. And I think uh, if you don't get a wide lens shot, I think sometimes people have misconceptions that like cattle are just you know, chained to a feed bunk and just eating all the while, or they don't have a lot of room to move around and neither of those things are reflective of reality. So again, if you're interested, definitely check out some of those resources that are online. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions about feedlots in terms of you know, their actual impact on the environment or their impact in the grand scheme of things. Um, and it's important to kind of take that step back and you know, what we talked about earlier about what cattle actually eat in the US um, and that fact that only 11% of their life cycle intake is actually grain. The reason that's true is because for the most of our cattle are going to spend the last four to six months of their life um, eating a, a finishing uh, diet within a feedlot, so most of their life is spent outside of a feedlot um, and on grass, right, or in some sort of forage-based situation. Um, so feedlots, you know, they, they have really high standards for care in the United States. I mean, we we have pen riders that are checking these animals every single day. Um, I think that's another misnomer is that they're not being tended for or cared after, Um, but people are, are, you know, making sure there's the highest quality of standards of care for those animals every day. We have things like beef quality assurance that are programs within the industry to actually ensure the best handling and husbandry of those animals. And that's, of course, true whether animals are in the feedlot or not. And I think one of the other concerns for feedlots uh, for people is the idea of all that manure, right, in one spot which for sure is and can be a concern, whether it's a feedlot or any other uh, livestock operation where you have a lot of animals in a small geographic space. Um, But of course, most of our feedlots in the US are going to be concentrated animal feeding operations. And really that's a a regulatory definition that has a lot of standards behind it in terms of how our producers actually have to uh, manage and design their facilities and capture any rainwater runoff capture 100% of it and make sure that it doesn't run off and actually pollute water streams. So I think that's the main thing is that there's just a lot of unknowns about feedlots and then again, select images that are used to kind of represent everything and I think people just don't know the day to day behind it. So again, there's a lot of resources out there. I definitely encourage people to check those out. It's always easier to actually see it with your own eyes um, than just kind of talking about it theoretically.
0: Yeah, I, no, I think that's great. I, I didn't know you all had that opportunity, especially to dive in from kind of a virtual reality type standpoint to to visit. Because in in our, our Instagrammable society, it's easy to take one snapshot from any vantage point and make things look uh, the way you want them to look. So that's cool. I hope everybody checks that out. Um, as you think about the the future, Sarah, what 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 comes to mind as as you know, the top challenges that, that either beef specifically or animal agriculture in general has ahead of it?
1: Yeah. So I think a lot of these sustainability issues, um, they're not going to go away, right? I mean, this is something I'm sure your listeners hear a lot, but of course we're going to have like 2 billion more people coming to dinner in the next 30 years. And we only have one planet Earth. So thinking about how we are, Intentional with the resources that we use and trying to do with more with less. Um, and then trying to balance that with all these other aspects of sustainability, like social issues of sustainability, are super important. So I think we have a lot of issues within animal agriculture that are perception based in terms of, um, you know, kind of like what we just talked about the perceptions versus the realities of how feedlots are managed. At the same time, we do have real things that so we have to keep working on. So it's kind of a double-pronged um, sword from that standpoint of, of the things that we actually have to uh, be working on. And then also just making sure that we're as transparent as possible so people can feel comfortable about you know, the food that they're eating, right? 100% of us are eaters, but there's just a very small percentage of people that are actually doing the day-to-day um, on the production agriculture side. So I think it's just about lifting that curtain Uh, when and where necessary and letting people see what's actually taking place and then if you know there's things that we're doing that aren't socially acceptable then we're going to have to change in terms of um, how production practices and and things take place and I think there's a long history of that in the beef industry and across American agriculture in terms of adapting to uh, new realities.
0: Right and what are you most excited about to kind of dive into next or are you uh is the the upcycling and the greenhouse gas emissions still a big part of uh the research you're doing or are there anything anything that maybe we haven't talked about that you're excited to sort of dive deeper into next
1: yeah so we we do have a lot of uh, research that's ongoing so some of it is on the these topics that you already mentioned so um essentially what we do in the beef industry is look at the whole supply chain of beef. So from pasture all the way to plate and do what we call life cycle assessment and look at, you know, where are the environmental impacts in every phase of the supply chain. Um, So I'm still excited about some of that research that we're finishing up that is looking at essentially from the packer processor all the way to the consumer and better understanding, you know, what are those impacts from that part of the supply chain that's usually ignored in most of these analyses. So that's That's something that's coming down the pike that I'm that I'm definitely interested in, and then, um, you know, part of that work is going to be, you know, knowing where our impacts are. Okay, what can we actually do about it, right? What can our farmers and ranchers or other people in the supply chain um, actually do that's practical, that's cost effective to try to improve? Thinking about how all these things interplay, so. That's some of the research that we have going on that's, I think, super exciting. And then the last thing I'll mention is what we kind of didn't talk about is all those, all those grazing lands in the United States. Um, some of the things about sustainability are, are usually just kind of boiled down to footprints, the water footprints or carbon footprints. But we're super interested in this whole concept of ecosystem services or the other benefits that we get from nature, we get from grazing lands, not really easily quantifiable at the moment. So we have some, a couple different projects going on on that. Um, so anything that our producers can do to you know, kind of better capture where they are and improve their grazing management and their, their management of lands in general is gonna make a big difference because you know, it's a very small segment of the population that's cattle grazers or other livestock grazers um, that are actually making a huge impact on a large portion of the United States. So I, I find that whole area of research Um, super
0: interesting i think very impactful going forward great yeah i mean i think it's a big paradigm shift from looking at at uh beef animals and other ruminants as sort of like methane emitting meat factories versus you know sort of like environmental foot soldiers that are out there upcycling stuff that we we can't use while improving the environment in which they serve and I, i think that's that's a huge paradigm shift that uh I think is is a helpful perspective to to keep in mind. Um, Well, I think this has been fascinating. It was fun for me, I hope you enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, I sure did, thanks Tim. appreciate it.
0: Big thank you to Dr. Sarah Place for being on the show. I really enjoyed that. Hey, If you have a friend who may be wrestling with some of these topics and wondering about the sustainability aspect of animal agriculture, would you just send them a text with a link to this episode? I really think it can be helpful and bring a lot of facts to the conversation about animal agriculture, specifically about ruminants a want to read another itunes review thank you to those of you who've taken the 30 seconds to hop on and do that uh we've got one here from dan hober who says love it engaging interesting and well done just started listening recently and i'm hooked dan thanks so much for leaving a rating and review on itunes if you are listening and haven't done that yet and you're enjoying this content please uh take 30 seconds and go leave one there it really does help bring others to this show But thank you, all of you, for your time and your attention and your curiosity and desire to be part of the solution rather than the problem when it comes to the future of agriculture. We'll be back next week.